Once upon a time, there lived a king. A king who had so much wealth that he could fill great halls to their roofs with it. When he visited the biggest Islamic city of his age, he brought so much money with him that he almost destroyed their economy. But this is no mythical fairy tale, and he wasn't just a big spender. His name was Mansa Musa, and he used his phenomenal wealth to build universities, libraries, and more. And in the process, established perhaps the greatest medieval kingdom in Africa. Welcome to another episode of Blind History. We're talking today about somebody who's quite mysterious, somebody who I don't think a lot of people who've read all the conventional history books have that much knowledge about, but somebody who, I mean, just by virtue of this man's extraordinary wealth, would have been the richest person in history. And we're not saying by a little way or by a you know a couple of millimeters or a couple of grams of gold here or there we're not talking about some industrialist of the 1900s we're not talking about some ancient king uh, like Midas although this guy's probably about the closest you get to king Midas we're talking about an african leader in the region that was probably what modern day mali ghana benin togo burkina faso senegal that area would have been the malian empire his name was Mansa Musa I, or Mansa Keita I. And, and uh, this guy, I mean, I don't know how much you knew about him before, but uh, Mansa Musa, man, that this guy had a lot of ammo. Sure, he did. They ran some tests in terms of what he would be worth today. Yeah. And they were thinking $400 billion. And um, maybe, you know, J.D. Rockefeller, they reckon around 340-odd billion. Mm-hmm. And and all our friends, the Bezos and the Musks and and the Gateses, they they're still in the hundreds. So, right. So that's proper proper wealth that he had. But I think it was the reason, obviously, for the obscurity in the beginning was the way the world was. The bulge of Africa hadn't been properly explored yet. Um, mm-hmm. So he was sitting on a literally he was sitting on a gold mine. <laughs> and, yeah, um, and and geography was probably the biggest part of why for such a long time um, this part of the world was so ignored by, you know, Europe and by the Muslim world, even of which he was certainly a part, um, you know, that you also have that huge Sahara Desert which is just absolutely impregnable to people who don't know it like the back of their hand. You know, there are Bedouins who've been traveling across the Sahara Desert for thousands of years. But if you don't know what you're doing there, you will die if you try and cross that enormous sea of sand. And on the other side of it, quite far into the interior of Africa and towards the West Coast, which, as you say, until that point, hadn't really been explored by sea either, there was this unbelievable empire, this thriving a uh, place where you had, you know, great rulers rise and fall, and you had enormous physical and 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 geological properties that just made it extraordinarily rich. And also, when he finally was discovered, when he went on pilgrimage, mm, it hard, sort of man. gave hope to Europe because um, if we think about the time, I think it was Edward the Third around about that time, sure. or at least the Edwards in the UK, the whole of Europe had been suffering from plague. There was economic hardships. There was a lot of really tough times in Europe. And now suddenly they saw this person that had, you know, so much wealth. And it was actually a positive feeling that they all created and something they could dream of and aim to try and conquer at a later stage, you know, once they'd found out. So he sort of came out of the woodwork 
at quite a good time. Well, yeah, Europe was not having a great time. It was the it was the Middle Ages. The Black Death had just happened. There was quite a lot of misery all over the place. There was certainly mm. not a lot of wealth to go around. And gold has always been a source of wealth for rulers, for kingdoms, for empires. It's been the way that they've expanded, the way that they've they've shown off their their value. It's the way that they've invested in themselves. It's kind of what they used as a currency and payment store of of value. All of that stuff, and. You know, Mansa Musa, it's got to be said, if, if it wasn't for, I think, his predecessor, not too far in front of him, I think it was his great uncle, um, who was obviously the guy who who came to the throne a little way before Sunjata, right? And, Correct, yes. Uh, and Sunjata was the first Mansa of the Mali Empire, uh, Mansa meaning king. Um, this guy was also quite an expansionist dude. He also had quite a an eye on conquering territory. But really, it was it was probably his takeover, Mansa Musa's takeover of, of cities like uh, Gao and Timbuktu that really cemented his place in history. And he had these kind of deputies that they called fathers that he had run the empire all over the place for him. And I think those are always the challenges for the ambitious rulers is, is how do you rule over vast territories and keep control? And I think this, this is where he was a good administrator and he was a devout Muslim and he just brought so so much good to that region, revolutionized and modernized the area, and specifically Timbuktu, where a lot of his buildings, his mosques and universities still stand today. It's amazing what type of individual he was. And, you know, the world might not have ever met him because he didn't really have a very strong claim to the throne. His grandfather's brother was the one that I think started the empire. And Probably his cousin, whose name was Abu Bakari Kaita the second, mm-hmm. he thought, "No, I need to look at this the sea and see if I can figure out what's at the other side of the sea." <laughs> and right. and so he he appointed him a regent while he just popped across, and he never came back. He disappeared supposedly with a fleet of thousands of ships, and you know there there are legends that he would have found the Western world. Of course, there's no evidence for that. But Ooh. either way, this man and thousands of ships all just disappeared. Leaving Mansa Musa with, with this in, incredible empire to administer. But the good thing is he took it forward. So he didn't take it and ruin it yeah. like a lot of things that were happening in this century. Well, a lot of people want to know how he you know, ended up administering this enormous fortune. Because obviously the fact that he was so rich is probably the most important and interesting factor about him. But he had obviously gold. They had a lot of gold mines in that part of Africa. Um, and they would just they would really dig it straight out of the rock. I mean, it was all over the place. And... The amount of gold was just staggering. Um, we'll get to how on his, on his Hajj pilgrimage, he had 12,000 slaves. Each one was carrying three kilograms of gold. Now, remember, they left a whole lot behind, and this was just what they could carry. Um, mm. but, but he was also rich because of the ivory trade. He was also rich because of the slave trade. You know, that part of the world was famous for selling slaves well before this time and for a long time after. Correct, but obviously not to the level that happened afterwards when people, you know, where it became a more of an open trade, which is effectively what he did. He opened the trade route. Mm-hmm. I think one of the other resources that they had was salt, which was also in yeah. uh, big demand point. as well, besides the gold and the slaves. I suppose the most amazing part of this guy's story is the story where he did decide to leave his empire, because if he hadn't done that, we might not have known anything about him. He decided to get together a caravan, a train of 60,000 men. And these 60,000 men, many of them were on camel, 
Many of them were on horseback. Many of them were walking. As I said, 12,000 of them were slaves. Each slave carried three kilograms of gold. Each camel carried 12 kilograms of gold. They were bedecked in the finest Persian silks. They were basically the world's most bling caravan ever. I mean, this exactly. thing, if this rolled into town, everybody, not just people in the 1300s, but everybody anywhere would have stopped and been – Astounded, astonished. They would have had their tongues hanging out. They couldn't believe because at this point no one had seen wealth like this. It was absolutely devastating because when he rolled into Cairo, for example, um, there was a little bit of a, a kind of precedence match between him and the guy who really kind of was ruling over um, Cairo, which is supposedly the greatest city in the, in the world at that point or the greatest city in the, in the Muslim world, certainly. Um, this guy, uh, he just gave him 250 kilograms of gold as a gift. He was like, you know, I mean, a kilogram of gold now is what, 60,000 rand? Somewhere around there? So if you yeah. think about 250 kilograms of gold, just as a, hey, I'm here, we're just visiting your city, here's a little something, something for you. I think his nose was out of joint, you know, the, oh. the sultan, because, yeah. because he heard that this guy was in town and the sultan gave gifts to him of these uh, beautiful rugs and garments and a little bit of silver. And then and Al Mansa Musa just gave him 250 kilograms of gold. Just dropped that at his feet. So this guy, um, the sultan Al Nasir Muhammad was, um, a little bit nose out of joint, but also I think mm. the long-term consequences of having this flood of gold into your city, they didn't think about it. The prices went sky high. There was inflation. Uh, the value of gold actually dropped, but these guys had mm. so much of it. These, these Malians had so much of it that they just, even though they increased the price every day for the couple of weeks that they were there, they just kept buying whatever they wanted. That Hajj is probably regarded by many historians as the most illustrious moment in the history of West Africa, which is a, a huge thing to say. His reign is mm. regarded as Mali's golden age and it's probably also got something to do with the fact that it was the best recorded by the Muslim sources. You know, history is only valuable if you can actually trace it, you can figure it out, you have reliable yeah. sources. And there may have or may not have been greater moments in Malian history and in, in Ghanaian history, in the history of West Africa. But this was the one that was probably best written down. And it's thanks again mm -hmm. to the Muslim scholars who in Cairo and Mecca largely wrote the story of this guy, or we might still have known nothing about him. You know, we might have discovered these incredible buildings in, in Timbuktu, but otherwise we wouldn't have known very much if it wasn't for their written records. Correct. He also paid very careful attention to what was going on in architecture, um, what they were doing in terms of institutions of learning. And you already mentioned that he built universities in Mali. Now, when we think about universities, we think mostly of institutions that came about after the Renaissance, you know, and maybe Oxford and Cambridge, which were standouts in, in Britain. But this was the 1300s, and there was our first African university, which was established in Timbuktu, largely because Mansa Musa had been on this pilgrimage and had seen so much of the world and decided that he needed to bring some of this home. And he needed to import some scholars with him. So he paid people in Mecca. He paid people in Cairo, whatever they wanted to come back with him so that he could establish institutions of learning, so that he could build impressive monuments, so that he could 
build the city of Timbuktu up to where he thought it, would, it, it deserved to be. And, and really, that was probably a bigger and more lasting legacy than all the, the bling and the showmanship. Yeah, some of the greatest minds, you know, in the Middle East, in the Near East, went to Timbuktu. Mm. And some of them stayed there. They, they were given a piece of ground on the Niger River, and they lived the rest of their lives out there. Right. And... Yeah, I mean, he, he had massive influence for Islam in West Africa. It's, it's, it's still prevalent today. So his influence was significant. The challenge that came in is, is that the European explorers started exploring more and more the bulge of Africa. And then that's where places like Timbuktu and Gao no longer were relevant in terms of the trade routes because now they, it was easier, you know, as they went by sea. But prior to that, I mean... It was, I think these sayings, even nowadays, I don't know if it's my parents used to say, you know, where is this place? Timbuktu? Right. Because it felt like it was this bizarre kind of hidden and mysterious place that was kind of cloaked in, in mystery. And you'd need a treasure map to find it. And maybe that's part of it because it was like treasure. At the height of its power, this empire encompassed an enormous territory, probably about as big as the distance between the east and west coasts of the United States. And the number of people in there was was enormous too. It was a huge population that he ruled over. And, you know, as you said, and, and as we discussed just now, he, he gathered to himself all these brilliant people, poets, architects, and uh, religious scholars, and, and people who were artisans of various kinds, and built um, some amazing, amazing monuments. I mean, one of them that, that still to this day is, is absolutely beautiful is this Jinguerba Mosque, which is in Timbuktu, which is made of mud and sticks kind of piled together. And it's been standing since the 1300s and is still used today as a mosque. And it rivals Alexandria in terms of antiquity, in terms of, right. of that type of statue and what it did in Timbuktu. And, and it's amazing how many people, um, myself included, I have to say, not too long ago, that didn't know who he was yeah. at all. Yeah, the, they were so impressed by him. And there were such legends and, and stories spread about him after his Hajj pilgrimage that, you know, all over Europe, people were talking about him in hushed tones and saying, oh, there's this amazing empire on the other side of the Sahara Desert. They included um, maps for the first time, which actually showed Africa be beyond the Sahara, which not even, you know, the Romans who loved maps, not even the Romans went south of the Sahara. And here on that famous 1375 Catalan um, atlas that was put together, they featured him and they showed him as this, you know, this great king who's enthroned with a beautiful crown on a scepter and a, and a huge lump of gold in his hand. Yeah, and, and that was one of the most famous maps that they used in the med medieval times. Mm. You know, I'd love to have lived to a certain extent. I wouldn't want to have necessarily died at the age of 30. But I mean, imagine there's so much to conquer in the world or to explore, let's say, that hadn't been explored yet. And, uh, and you know, coming from Europe, that the whole of Africa lay before you in this expanse. But in the end, he died. I think like like all of these things such a long time ago, they're not 100% sure. It could have been 1330, maybe 1337. Right. And his sons took over. And I think not necessarily in terms of the way he ran the empire, but more the nature of exploration that took place post Mansa Musa um, lessened uh, the importance of, of the, the, the Saharan trade route um, to the gold of West Africa. And then more and more people went around the bulge. And I think that probably 
you know, it was the beginning of the end for, for places like Timbuktu. Well, it wasn't also managed very well. And, and the problem here again was that he didn't really make it clear how the succession law was going to work, like who would take over once he was gone. You know, a lot of these great rulers, they tend to think they'll live forever. And then when they go, there's no clarity about who should take over. And then, of course, there's squabbles, there's civil war. All of that took over. You know, they said that it would take them a month to walk from east to west. His empire was so big that the greatest zenith, you know, as you mentioned right in the beginning, Mauritania, Senegal, Nigeria, Burkina Faso, Chad. Huge. um, Northern Ghana. Amazing. Well, people also spoke about his um, generosity, obviously. He he really just handed out wealth wherever he went. And he's well known also for having been extremely virtuous. He was a good Muslim through and through. He's not recorded as having, yeah, having done anything that was um, considered, you know, immoral or unethical. And also being a highly intelligent human being and wanting to spread useful information good knowledge, the kinds of things that he knew would help his empire to last for a long time, both when he got back home and while he was learning on that pilgrimage. And I don't think he suffered fools easily because he was very pious. And mm. when the sultan heard that he, that he was passing through Cairo, yeah. um, he said, you need to present yourself um, to the sultan. So he said, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, yeah. I'm on Hajj at the moment. I'm not, I'm not going to present myself. And it was a little bit uncomfortable, let's say. So finally he went to the sultan and presented himself. What you needed to do was kiss the sultan's feet. That was mm-hmm. that was normal custom. And um, he refused to kiss the sultan's feet. And I think that was to and fro for a while. I don't think he kissed his feet, actually, no. in the end. But um, well, they got on very well. Of and, course they and got on very the... well. It, wouldn't you get on well with me if I gave you 250 kilograms of gold? Yeah, exactly. Hell yes. Yeah. You know? 100%. Yeah, I, he certainly was an interesting man. I, I wish that we'd had more records, you know, written and, and otherwise, that we could have found out a little bit more about this guy because it's a bit thin on the detail. But certainly mm-hmm. that, that Hajj, that trip that he took with that huge caravan of people – is one of the most famous in history. And you can imagine it was so long, they say, that from beginning to end, if you saw the beginning and you had a clear horizon, you couldn't see the end. That's how long it yeah, was. Yeah, it's just incredible. And then also you need logistically, you needed to figure out how to, it's such a massive challenge. You know, you're not going through lush forests with lots of apples and, you know, it's the desert. It's, Absolutely. It's the Saharan desert, so you really need to come prepared. Yeah, you kind of wonder what might have happened. And I remember when a bunch of, of militant Islamists went into Western Africa and started conquering parts of it not so long ago here in the last 10, 15 years. The one thing they left alone, despite the fact that they destroyed a lot of very precious ancient history, a lot of it to do with Mansa Musa, the thing that they left was the mosque. So even, even they, even monsters like them, understood that mm-hmm. they couldn't destroy that. For all intents purposes, he was pious and he was a good man. Yeah, and very, very, very rich. <laughs> very, very rich. And, and maybe he did knock a hole in, in his cousin's boat when he set off to sail. Uh, maybe. To... Maybe. <laughs> I mean, again, just to give you a bit of perspective on how much money uh, he, he just threw away, that small amount of gold he dropped at the feet of the Sultan of, of Cairo, if you did that in today's money, they reckon it would be something like $45 million dropped, sure, dropped at just... his feet. Just like, here we go. That's for fun. Yeah. 
But I think that this is what's quite nice is that this is a bit of an appetizer and people now can go and do a little bit more investigation into this because it was very, very interesting person. Absolutely. And all those Western African empires, you know, their rises and falls are a little bit less well known than the the rest of the history of Africa. So I think there's probably a lot of exploration to be done there still. And who knows? Mm. They may still discover and they are doing archaeological digs in that area now. They may just discover whole cities. They may discover more evidence of Mansa Musa's great reign. And we could just be scratching the surface here on a, on a really yeah. exciting new way for history to unfold. Yeah, and that's why I love history so much. Damn right. Thanks for listening to this episode of Blind History. Every episode is available on the Cliff Central app, cliffcentral.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the next episode, this guy really did exactly what you'd expect a pharaoh to do you know took control implemented his ideas conquered vast territories brought egypt to the top of its game and really you can criticize anybody in history and rightly we should but he seems to have done a pretty good job of keeping an extremely difficult empire together 